Welcome to the Mastering the Mind podcast, where we take you through professional elite athletes and coaches' stories about how they cope with the psychological demands of competing at elite level. Before we start the podcast, a quick message from the sponsor of this week's episode, Podcast Page. To all of our listeners who are also podcasters and have their own show, we're excited to recommend a great tool called podcastpage.io to create your own podcast website. It really is the best solution for your podcast website and we'll get your page live in just a few minutes. Links will be in the description of our YouTube video. Today we welcome Rob Morris to the podcast. Rob is the lead foundation phase coach at Watford Football Club. Rob is a UEFA licensed coach. He's previously worked at Ladies WSL Development Team Manager, Assistant Academy Coach at Barnet and Under 11 Player Development Centre Coach at Arsenal Soccer Schools. So let's welcome Rob to the podcast. Hello, hello. How are you? How are you doing? Yeah, good, good. How's your day been? Not too busy? Yeah, nice. It's been all right, to be fair. We've been, um, I think we're starting to wind down kind of towards the end of the season. So, yeah, um, day at home. I've got no no sessions today. So, yeah, just kind of catching up on PMA and a um, few emails and um, just uh, yeah, uploading a few bits. So, yeah, fairly, fairly relaxed one today, which is nice. Yeah. What's a normal sort of day in the life? Because we uh, we spent a day at Crystal Palace and we were surprised how much actually goes into like the foundation phase. So like, what sort of a normal day in the life for you? Um, it does vary from day to day, to be honest. So um, we, we train three evening sessions a week. So yeah. Mondays, Tuesdays and Thursdays from five till seven and then kind of games on the weekend. You know, generally Sundays, like most clubs, but the occasional Saturday fixture. I think all days are different and, you know, the, the days of the week will, will differ depending on um, which meetings we've got or, you know, what, what's going on. But if I talk you through like a regular Monday, which is probably the busiest day, so it'll be starting off um, sending through the, the schedule for the week. Um, so the coaches know in advance, obviously, where they're at and where they need to be. So sending through the, um, the coaches, so the part-time coaches, um, I suppose, yeah, plan for the week, which would incorporate like who who they're coaching with, what timings, um, what they're coaching, the, the session outcomes for the week. Um, then we have, we call it a, a lead phase meeting on a, a Monday. So I'm one of four lead phase coaches in the academy. So I lead the under 11s and under 12s. Um, there's my colleague, Adam Bellata, who does nines and tens. Uh, Jimmy Martin does the 13s and 14s and Armand Kavaya does the 15s and 16s. So we're all kind of um, got, got the same roles across the academy, but within the different age groups. So we get together on a Monday with all the other MDT. So the head of technical development, um, you know, the lead physio, S&C, education. And we kind of, it's a bit of an operational meeting and a bit of a review from the weekend. So we kind of go through what's the, what does a week look like? Kind of any announcements, making sure that, um, uh, you know, we can organise any, any particular meetings, um, go through the weekend. So go through some of the success, success criteria that we add to the individual age groups, go through, talk about um, any of the boys that were playing across. So playing up, playing up an age group, playing down an age group, we try and call it across to get rid of any connotations of doing well or not doing well. Um, and then, um, you know, talk, talk about trialists and kind of plan, plan the week from that, that um, degree. And then, um, it'll just be whatever kind of needs to be done on the day. So there's a, say again, it's a Monday, I'll be having the fun job of uploading the uh, 
um, PMA, so updating all the minutes and positions and you know what's gone on there and, and targets. And then um, planning the session, setting up the session and kind of go and meet the boys, you know, quarter to five and go from there and deliver the session, take them back. So yeah, quite full on, but that's probably one of one of the busier days. Mm. But yeah, it's, they're quite quite um, unique a lot of the days. Yeah, no, it's super interesting. I love uh, talking about how much goes into the foundation phase because obviously, for me, that's the phase that I'm probably most passionate about because it's more about you know developing that love for the game, which made me fall in love with football when I was being coached throughout those age groups. So uh, I love getting an insight into it. Um, but anyway, a great place like we'd like to start with our guests that come on the podcast and for the listeners to sort of get to know you um, really quick is, you know, talk us through your journey to date. So growing up to where you are now, you know, who is Rob Morris? Okay, um, so currently um, I am the, like I just touched on, I'm the under 11s and 12s lead foundation phase coaching academy and one of four lead coaches. Um, I'm actually in my 15th season at Watford as an employee, um, ninth season in the academy in the um, foundation phase. So it's kind of where I've spent most of my time. Um, I kind of, if I go back to the very beginning, um, you know, growing up or through school, there was nothing that I kind of was as passionate about the um, more than football. So that was, you, you know, um, you know, when you're a kid, you live it, breathe it, you know, watch it, you know, play it all day long, the best you can. Um, but yeah, wasn't blessed to be an amazing player by any means, just a kind of average standard grassroots player. Um, but I think when it got to like the back end of school, so sick form, you know, I was in a bit of a position where like, what, what do I want to do? The only um, thing that I'm really passionate about is football. So obviously couldn't enter it, um, you know, into the, the world of, of playing professionally. But I think I was really fortunate at the time when I was 17. Um, there's a guy called Nick Cox, who you may know is the head of academy now at Man United. All of, um, back then, he worked for Watford in um, academy or community. I think it, they were all kind of blended into one back then. And um, he um, came into our school and he delivered an FA Level 1 coaching course okay. for anyone that, that wanted to do it. And that was, I think, the penny drop moment of like, I want to do what you do. So, you know, a first real kind of role model or maybe someone that kind of made it accessible in my mind to go, actually, there is something that I can do and that isn't it playing. Um, because everything, you know, I had other interests, but nothing that, you know, really lit the flame like football did. So I, off the back of doing that, um, I attempted university so I um, did two first years at two different unis. I, um, I think that's a, sto um, a story for another day. Um, but, you know, one of the things that I did come away from uni, though, as well as having a really, really good time, which is probably why I, I didn't stay there for as long as I should have done, um, I did come away with my FA Level 2. So kind of by the age of 19, I'd, I'd Level 2. I'd got a little bit of coaching experience, you know, small small little bits here and there. So um, when I got back, um, I just started looking at um, local clubs and basically emailing my CV to loads of local clubs and um, you know seeing what came back. And at the time, Tottenham came back to me and, and um, Watford came back to me, both the community departments and, and where I lived in St. Albans 
um, Watford seemed like the better option. And I think that time they were um, the Football League Community Club of the Year. So, you know, a really good place to um, start, I felt. So that was back when I was 20. I started um, as a part-time coach in the community. Um, so started off going, doing after-school clubs, PE lessons, social inclusion, um, top sessions, near enough anything I could do. I was just kind of all in, you know, getting as many different experiences as I could do, working with all different um, diverse groups, different um, abilities of players, girls, boys. Um, and then it kind of progressed towards the development centres. So kind of a couple of years. Um, and within the, I suppose, the first year of um, working for Watford in the community, again, it, it was just part time. Um, a friend of mine, a guy called Gavin Brown, um, had started his own, um, him and a couple of others had started their own coaching business in schools. So um, I, I got the opportunity to um, have a full-time coaching job in schools, although it was PE teaching and multi-sports, um, I still kept, so I needed, obviously you've got to go and pay the bills. And, you know, I think at 21, you know, a full-time opportunity in coaching can't be sniffed at, even if it's, it's not football, there's so much cross transferable skills of, of working you know, across lots of different sports. So um, I actually ended up doing that job. So it started off as a, a coach in the community group and then it turned, it became a company called Primary Sport and Development and they're, they're still going and they're still doing extremely well. Um, so I actually started doing that for, I did that for nine years full time alongside football until I got um, a full time opportunity academy. But mm. to kind of go back to the previous timescale, it feels a bit like Marvel jumping from... Um, <laughs> different timescales but um so in terms of my time at Watford yeah started a couple of years um you know with the trust all different like I said different um, opportunities social inclusion then it went to development centers and then after a couple of years I got an opportunity to work for the ladies team so I became the development team manager and the under 17s head coach so it's kind of like a dual role so kind of overseeing the transition from um, the centre of um, centre of excellence under 17s into senior football, so it was quite a full-on role. So I'd be basically in charge of, of two teams. So one on the Saturday, the down uh, the under 17s, and one on the Sunday, the development team or, or reserves. It was back then, and did that for two and a half years. So I was involved in the senior setup as as well. Um, that was an unbelievable experience, and probably in terms of actually learning about myself as a, as a coach and some of you know how important some of the values I still have now, um, kind of where they started to form, that that was massive. And then in 2013-14 season, an opportunity came in the academy part-time. And, and I think thanks to some of the relationships I'd built throughout the time at the club and, um, you know, continuing with my coach education and um, an opportunity came up and then, you know, took the what I felt the next logical step to go into academy part-time and then... Um, I think three seasons in, a full-time opportunity came up and, you know, applied for it and luckily got it. And kind of that's the short version to quite a long story, but that that's kind of brings us to where I am now. No, yeah, it's, uh, it's honestly a class story because I think it shares, you know, the reality of, of what being a coach is. I had a coaching role at Solio Moores on Arca placement year when I was at uni and, you know, a lot of them coaches were like full-time at Solio Moors, but they were having to work part-time roles at like Villa and, and their setup and things like that. So 
working multiple roles is definitely the reality of a coach until you get that big full-time position. Um, yeah, absolutely. Like the amount of times I'd be finishing an after-school club and then, you know, sprinting across, sprinting to the car, yeah. driving to the car park, getting changed in the car, you know, yeah. having a little wrap on the way to, to get into the session on time. You know, you, it has to be done though. It's the life of it. Yeah, but you love it. So I suppose that's the, the benefit. Um, you mentioned your, your level one, your level two. Obviously, you've gone on to UEFA now. Um, obviously, on these coaching courses, they uh, talk a lot about coaching philosophy. You know, what's sort of your coaching philosophy and, and what are your values as a coach? I think, um, so to answer honestly, where I've been so um, consistent in a club, I think sometimes because I have to deliver on behalf of the club and, you know, match the values and beliefs of, of the club, um, I, th I think sometimes it's important to know that if you came to watch me coach, you would see what you'd like to think of what the session would look like. Yeah. But um, I think if I talk to my own coaching philosophy, um, I suppose it's kind of two strands to it, really. If I was looking at the, the session design, I'd, I'd use three R's. So you'd, I'd like to think if you came to watch, you'd see realism, so um, relevance, and repetition so it, is it real to the game um does it look like the game is it relevant to the level to to what you're trying to work on work on work towards and is it repetition so loads of boys having loads of touches and loads of goes at, um what, what that is i think in terms of how i am um another one is three eyes so um what i kind of pride myself on is those things so inspiration individuals and intensity so do i inspire the individuals inspire the people around me so part-time staff coaches um players do i um touch on all the individuals so obviously they've all got different needs even in the academy group so do i affect as many of the individuals as i can and is there an intensity okay just so does it, it are they working hard so they're coming off the pitch with red faces and sweating their hair and you know when they get in the car, mum and dad looks like, well, they've, they've worked hard today. They, they've given it a good go. So those, I think, would be the things that I pride myself on. Um, but obviously that is delivered through what, um, you know, the, the ways and methods that we deliver in the academy. So I, I presume your philosophy and kind of like your values as a coach has evolved throughout your experiences and throughout the years. Um, could you maybe give me potential tips to up and coming coaches who would like to kind of reach the stage that you're at as in terms of trying to develop that philosophy? Is there anything that you'd recommend them to potentially read or um, you know, anything like that? Or is it just through experience, just gaining that experience and developing from that, would you say? I think definitely both. Um, there's loads of different, you know, loads. We're really fortunate to be in a... Um, um, a time where there's so many resources so readily available so even when mm. i was starting out like you know nearly 15 years ago that we didn't couldn't just log on to twitter and go on sunday yeah. share or look at all the sessions on youtube um so there's so many resources that are available so i think um for any any part-time or any young coach you have to be i think uh almost like obsessive but, but with that you have to um be open to as many different ideas and, as, and experiences as possible. So I think when I look back, one of the things that um, 
set me in really good stead was having such a diverse coaching um, or coaching experiences really early on. So I could go from a school session to um, where you're dealing with a P lesson of 30 to an after school mm -hmm. club um, of a different sport, then driving out to, to go and do a social inclusion session. And But it's understanding what is the, the common threads, I think. So is what is what you're doing going to be um, relevant to the needs of the group? Okay, are you inspiring those individuals? Um, you know, are whatever one you whatever you're delivering, ensuring everyone in there is enjoying themselves first and foremost. Um, uh, so yeah, I would say to anyone starting, you know, just go in with an open mind because you know where you think you would want to start. So I started with um, an idea of probably working in football. I didn't really know what, um, you know, and, and it took me and I had a bit of a career sideways curve, I suppose, going working in schools for nine years. And now I'm back in football, but without those, that time in schools and, you know, certainly developing and understanding how to manage a class of 30 and talk to teachers and all the different things that, that go within working in a school. Um, you know, I would, wouldn't be the coach or wouldn't have the experiences um, and tools to call upon in an academy environment now. So yeah. I think the main thing is just be open-minded and um, willing to listen and learn from, from anywhere and everywhere. Mm. Mm. You spoke a lot there about, you know, learning from experience. Are there any coaches that sort of inspire you or you try to sort of emulate a little bit, you know, or, or, or just take little things from? Um, you know, that have helped you along the way? Um, yeah, I've been fortunate to work with some really good people. And I think that's the, that's the important thing is the people, the um, guys I'm going to touch on, they are very, very good people, first and foremost. Yeah. And, you know, I, I kind of see them as like a friend or, or mentor first and then a, a coach second. Uh, I think good coaching is a byproduct of just being a really good good person and being good at your job. So um, I think I've been fortunate enough to work with, so Chris Thurston, um, he's now a player liaison at Arsenal, but he was a coach previously. I worked with the ladies and then at the academy at Watford, and now he's over at Arsenal. You know, really, really um, good guy. Um, Tom Hart, who's the under 18s coach at Watford, is excellent. Um, I think that there's just so many um, to, to, to call upon. Um, if I was to say people that I don't know, if, does that make sense? So, or people yeah. I've only spent a small amount of time with, but I actively go and source, yeah. you know, if I hear a podcast or, you know, see them put something on, on social media, I would say Nick Cox at Man United. Um, I had a really brief, uh, you know, initial interaction with him, you know, a few years ago is he's someone that I kind of still see as that role model. And, you know, he's, uh, you know, when you look back now, how fortunate was I the future head of academy at Man United to be the first kind of glimpse into what uh, uh, coaching could could be and or a career in coaching could be. Um, ben Bartlett, who's um, head of coaching at Fulham, um, he's been he was really um, excellent for me throughout my coaching courses. So a lot of the youth modules I, I did with Ben, and you know, actively source out his work around constraints because I think that's so powerful for the foundation phase or I suppose, I suppose any um, level of coaching but specifically I think in the foundation phase um, and there's a guy called Steve Salis who I think is excellent um, he's a bit more of a mindset and um, uh, performance 
or um, I don't even know how he would describe himself. I think he, he does just say he's a guy called Steve that likes to help people. So, you know, yeah. he is someone that I, I generally, if there's a podcast or um, uh, any, any way I can listen to more of his information, he's excellent because I think we have certain share a lot of values. So those yeah. are three people, perhaps if I could go and spend time in a company and then really want to learn from, they, they would be three people I would go to that I don't already know very well. Yeah. We were literally talking about Ben Bartlett earlier, um, you yeah. know, looking at what successful people do on social media. Um, and he was literally one of them because I've done my level one and two. And um, yeah, he was someone that was mentioned heavily on the course. Someone I'd love to chat to, to be honest, um, because he definitely seems very insightful. Um, in terms of all these coaches and as well yourself, you know, what psychologically do you feel makes a successful coach? Like, what attributes? You mentioned being a great person, but is there anything else as well what you feel like a coach should try and develop to be a good coach? Um, so I think the, the best coaches I've seen have a certain charisma about them. So and when they're working, they can captivate everyone. And, it's, and I think that comes through creating an environment which is ultimately positive but setting the the expectations and 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 um, actually having a really uh, caring nature, so ensuring that everyone that's in that session feels valued and and loved and um, and uh, so I think having that, I suppose charisma would be the word I would describe, but it doesn't mean that that can look different depending on the age that you you're working at. So for a younger, so for a foundation face coach at times, you might need to be like a kid's entertainer, loads yeah. of high fives and fist bumps and um, that kind of thing. But, you know, obviously, but, you know, at the top end, charisma can look very, very different. So I think that um, not necessarily a psychological trait, but I think any or all the, the coaches I've mentioned, they've got an outstanding subject knowledge. Um, to, you know, you, you have to be able to impart knowledge. So within that caring and positive environment, you have to be able to um, improve the players, and, you know, and, uh, and you know, maximise their opportunity in your care yeah. because you've been trusted with however long, you know, an hour, two hours, you know, multiple sessions, they're entrusting you with their time. You know, yeah. players only get one go at it. So the subject knowledge is key. If you don't have that to back up, you know, the positive environment, you're doing them a disservice, I think. And then I suppose lastly, I think, again, if I'm thinking of all those coaches, they're uh, just motivated to succeed and, and, you know, and really wanting to um, listen and take on board information and, you know, ask questions from everyone. And so Tom Hart is really good. At, um, and so again, I, I work with the 11s and 12s, but a lot of the time I will spend out shadowing him and watching or you know he might ask me to assist and, and help out and he'll ask me for feedback what did I think you know what you know and where I coach in the foundation phase and you know the PDP there's quite a big jump but you know even even then he wants to learn and you know and see if I what would I do differently and how to improve it um mm -hmm. so yeah just motivated to be better all the time yeah for sure yeah, this is something we don't really talk about with regards to like academy coaches, especially is kind of like the self-care aspect. Um, what do you feel like uh, are some kind of demands that are placed on you on day to day, do you feel? Um, and how do you kind of step away from 
football if you can if you have the time to kind of disconnect and have that kind of self-care aspect yeah it is i think the older i get the more self-care and um i think work-life balance is is massive Mm. um is absolutely huge and i think um before covid hit and everyone you know and and i think the academy industry and i am generalizing and i can only speak for my own club but you know what what i do hear from other people in similar roles is i think um covid showed that you can still be an effective academy coach and not be in the building all day every day um so i think that that was a you know one of the positives that came out of that situation Mm -hmm. so i think work-life balance is key so um you know, finding you have to be again. If if I'm thinking, if I was given to give someone advice, to, it, was, it was stepping into my shoes or stepping into a similar role. Is mm-hmm. you have to be resilient. So I think you you have to um, understand there's going to be long car journeys, there's going to be long days, there's going to be late evenings. You're going to have to sacrifice a lot. So there's there's lots of um, uh, you know things that I've or social events that I've had to leave early or, or miss out on because of games on a Sunday morning. Um, so I think there is, you have to be willing to sacrifice that. Um, but you, you have to, and perhaps this isn't exclusive for academy coaches. I'd imagine this is the same for people that work in an office. You mm-hmm. have to have that work-life balance. So when you come home, um, you know, spend time with your family, make sure you spend the time with your friends. You know, even if you have to, you know, reorganize your schedule. So I'm, you know, I'm, I do like a night out and, the, you know, a good drink like anyone, but now the older I get, it's now they're starting Saturday after, you know, Saturday lunchtime and finishing in the afternoon. So that I'm make sure that I'm in the best possible state I can be for the players in the Sunday morning. Um, so that, that kind of thing. So there's a little bit of compromise. Um, and I think I would say try and have interests outside of football. So like a hobby. So whether that's going to the gym, whether that is, um, you know, playing PlayStation, whether that's Netflix, you know, <laughs> just just something that isn't football, football, football all the time. Because yeah, um, yeah. I've already, I don't want to sound contradictive because I said you do have to be an obsessive, which you do. But I think you can only be the best version of yourself if you are kind of feeling fully charged as much as you can and, and kind of keeping your, uh, your candle burning. You don't want to you don't want to burn out. So yeah, ensuring work-life balance. And if you miss a game of football for a family event, there's going to be a hundred thousand more games of football that you might not see your brother or sister get married ever again. So yeah. prioritize the important things. Hundred percent. I definitely agree with like the wider identity thing. That's something you know we're, we're trying to promote on this podcast. I've done a lot of uh, research around like released academy footballers and you know them having a wider identity rather than just you know it's the only option for me is being a pro um it's interesting that you bring it over for a coach as well you know being able to switch off I definitely feel like that for myself that you know being able to switch off after a long day is so difficult but something that like, I'm constantly trying to facilitate in my own life because often I, can't, I do burn out we, we burn out on our studies so much like trying to balance the podcast, the masters, and so many different other things. Um, so it's definitely important that we talk about like things like self care and that because often there's like this grind culture on, uh, on on social media where people are celebrating lack of sleep and you know burning the candle at both ends because it's seen as like grinding. And 
just trying to educate people on, you know, that's just not the case. You know, <laughs> you know, you're not going to perform to your best if you're absolutely like knackered all the time. You know what I mean? No, uh, yeah, absolutely. I, you know, I, I can't agree more. So I think that that's absolutely massive and understanding, you know, how and taking time for yourself and being selfish. You know, I, I you know, there was points where if I got home and played a game of FIFA, I'd feel guilty back or, you know, watch a, a binge a box set, but I'd feel guilty. And actually it's not until I'm a little bit older, actually that's not selfish time or it's, it's also not wasted time. You yeah. do need that time to, to mentally check out and that's okay. You know, you don't have to be coming home from a day working in football to, you know, go and watch a, a league two game on just because it's the only game of football on, on TV or constantly taking notes and tactics and, you know, listening yeah. to watching every single Monday night football, you know, mm. it's okay if you miss one and it's, it's all right. If you're going to, you know, if you, you're going to let your, um, you know, partner watch selling sunset or whatever they want to watch <laughs> it instead. Sounds like, you know, a fan of that show. <laughs> <laughs> oh, good. So just go, Going back to your current role at, at Watford, so when I was doing research on you, I came across like a pretty PowerPoint about the kind of mixed age group approach. Um, do you feel like you could kind of shed light on, on this kind of approach if, if possible? And why did this approach kind of start in the first place? Yeah, so um, so like I said, I'm one of, at the beginning, I'm one of four lead phase coaches. So we have yep. um, like double banded phases, so 9s, 10s, 11s, 12s, 13s, 14s and 15s and 16s. And um, it started about three or four years ago. So we're kind of four years into it. And I think we're slowly starting to see some of the rewards. Mm. So one of the things that we want to try and do is uh, maximize individuals experience. And, um, you know, there's always going to be a, when you are banding a group of players, there's always going to be a cutoff, you know, whether that's September to September or 1st of September to 31st of August in our country, or you go to Germany and it's the 1st of Jan to 31st of December, there's always, you always have some kind of constraint around your age. Um, whereas in a, um, a double banded phase, you know, you can train together and you can really tailor the experience for, for some of the boys. So, you know, you may have um, a late developer. So if I, so I do the under 12s, I've got a Q4 under 12 that's a late maturer and they it's much more um obviously everything is done with you know the a wider context in mind but you know for a lot of the time it might be more appropriate for them to train with the Q1 under 11s because in age and, and possibly maturity um they might be you know a couple of weeks or a month apart whereas that Q4 could actually be a year apart from people in his own age group so that hasn't quite, you know, can't quite kick it as far as them or, you know, emotionally not mature enough to understand you know, the tactical side of things like, like someone else. So it's, it gives us more flexibility in terms of tailoring the experience for everyone from a physical and, and um, sight point of view. The other thing that I think is really key is relationships and, and experiences. So having an opportunity of being one of the oldest and then one of the youngest. So what we want to try and do is prepare the boys for a scholarship at the, at the end of the journey so if you are a q1 uh, or a q2 in your age group and you've only ever played in your own age group the, the whole journey when you go into being a first year scholar you know and you're with the second years you, you might freeze or you might not be as comfortable in that environment in our model what we'd like to think say you know and 
this won't be the same for everyone because you'll you'll people will come in and exit at different times in the journey but if you start as an under nine and you go through you'll have um, nines 11s 13s and 15s you where you're one of the youngest 10s 12s 14s and 16s being one of the oldest and you've already spent four years with the group above and the group below so you've already built those relationships so when you're coming in if a second year scholar you know is, is there and is doing well and they've got the first years coming in straight away there's already that bond because they've spent time with them previously and we've we're starting to see some of the um now we're three or four years into it starting to see some of the success stories with the under 15s getting to our floodlit cup final and three under 14s started in that game and there was a few that actually came on and okay. and you know were a really important part of it and although they technically aren't in the same phase because you know it's 13s and 14s and 15s 16s they've already been through that that journey and you can see just when they come on the pitch it's not there's that element of trust straight away so that now we're starting now we're a few years into the process we are starting to see some of the benefits i think yeah it's super interesting like exposing them to you know different sizes and yes yeah, it's, it's, it's very interesting and how is kind of like the psychology implemented in in this you say if it is how's that kind of implemented um i'm not sure it, it i'm not sure we we don't have um a psychological provision as such but i think what we um want to try and get out is, is uh, i think the best way to describe it is it's implemented informally okay you know i mean so through those experiences there's natural outcomes so mm. if you are you know a nine and 11 a 13 and a 15 you have to be resilient because you're training with players a year older than you a lot of the time so you're you're, you're getting used to dealing with setbacks overcoming adversity and um you know failing a lot of the time and also then you get the flip side of it so you get a lot of um success and confidence if you're one of the older ones and you know and understanding that you can do things well so you get a kind of a good balance um so i think yeah some of the i think a lot of the the traits that i think of the psychological traits of successful footballers the experience as a whole although it may be informally done does put them in situations and gives them experiences where they then have those um tools later on to draw upon yeah if that makes sense what i'm saying yeah 100 percent um just talking on you know the successful attributes of, of professional players you know what do you look to develop in academy players psychologically um, in the foundation phase uh, for them to be successful, you know, things like confidence, et cetera, you know, what are you looking to develop in these lads? Yeah. So I think the foundation phase is, um, is a great one because it's right at the beginning of their journey and you're, you're setting them up for potentially the next 10 years in, in an academy environment, if not longer, if they manage to, to stay all the way. So the first thing you've got to do is, um, make sure they have fun. No, that's not not uh, you know necessarily a psychological trait, but through having fun, there's going to be loads of byproducts. So the first thing you there is is confidence and enjoyment, and um, so I think that's key to to give them the confidence. You know, just as I think both on the ball and actually have confidence as themselves in a per or confidence in themselves as a person. Yeah. Um, so you know, being comfortable in their own skin and you know, ensuring that they are um, open to constructive feedback and all the different 
you know, elements that come with being in a football team or being a football player. Um, I think we have to make sure that there is a certain amount, even at the young age of resilience. Okay, so make, putting speed bumps in the way and making things challenging. You know, we want a little bit of success and a little bit of struggle, but making sure that most of the time they are, you know, working at a level that is uh, a kind of level level for their stage of development. Yeah. But, you know, still making sure you, there is those um, learning opportunities and when things go wrong, you know, talking to them about it and, and why. I think we want boys to be brave and, you know, you know and, and go in with an open mind and a, a growth mindset. So, you know, that, that's the, the great thing about the foundation phase in terms of playing in lots of different positions and lots of different formats. You know, um, I think that's um, where the formats are small and you get loads of different experiences and score lines don't matter. You know, I think you can certainly, and that helps instill the bravery. And then I think what one of the key things for me is um, ensuring they understand the importance of accountability, even at a young age. So a, like a no excuses kind of mindset. You know, one of my bugbears is pointing fingers and, and pointing blame. So, um, you know, like if you are a forward player, you know, or you're someone that likes to play up front and you make loads and loads of runs, um, but you're throwing your hands in the air or, or mum or dad comes to me and says, he keeps making these runs, but he doesn't pass it. He keeps taking touches. You know, and the conversation is, it's okay. You know, be accountable to what you can do. You can't control whether he's going to pass it or not, but you have you can control the amount of runs you make and, you know, being resilient in, in that, on, in deciding to do those. Because the one time he does do it, you'll be there if you stop and give up or you, you, you make excuses and you point fingers for things that are out of your control. It's not going to help you. So um, I think that's really key thing when to, to install early on, because you don't want to start. Yeah, we want to be have a positive and inclusive environment, but we don't want to coddle them and, and, you know, set them up for failure later on because we've been too kind and you know, made excuses or allowed parents to make excuses for them early on. Yeah. Just on the topic of parents, you know, how uh, how important do you think they are to their child's development, you know, throughout the academy? Um, what's your experience been like with them and, you know, how can they help the child? I think that parents are essential, aren't they? Because without yeah. them, there's no kids. So yeah. you have to include them. Um, and um, so I think you should my most positive experiences with groups of parents is when you get them on side and I think when you get to, to get them on side is being open being friendly smiling getting to know them knowing them by first name making time to speak to them like you would do any player so you know yeah. if you see them in the car park shake hands how you doing you know try and learn little brothers and sisters name or you know what they do as a job you know how was work that kind of thing and because as soon as they feel valued by you they're going to really listen to what you say um, and so and what you carry or what you say carries a lot more. So I think building relationship with them is just as, as key as um, building relationship with a boy, because when the boy is in the building, it's not. Yes, he is the player or she is the player, depending on your environment. But the family is with them throughout the time. Yeah. So it's really important that the family feels just as included as, as they do. Um, so building relationships. Once you've built a relationship, then I think it's important that you create the 
like a parental construction, like a social construction, where if you, you know, rather than, I don't like personally rules to say, don't do this, don't do this, don't do this. You know, for, for me, it's a bit like if you are a Watford parent or whoever, Chelsea parent, whatever your club is, you know, Watford parents are um, positive, they're understanding and they listen. Okay, so if you if you want to be a Watford parent, you can be those three things. You know, if you yeah. don't want to do those things, that's fine, but you're not for us. You don't, I'm not, not telling you what's right. I'm telling you, if you want to be here, this is what we'd ask you to do. Yeah. If you want to scream and shout from the touchline and you want to coach them, you know, the minute they get in the car and that kind of thing, I'm not saying you're wrong. It's your child. You're 100% entitled to do that, but just not here. So feel free and go away. But, you know, I'm not saying what you're doing is wrong, but just go and do it over there. So um, that's, that's what I would, that, that's, I think, what I would say is giving them uh, a, like a, so we call it social construction. So providing that for the parents, like you would do for the players, but understanding that they probably want what's best. They generally care, I think. And sometimes that's where you get the, the conflict is because they care so much. So it's about, um, you know, education and, and making sure that they know what the expectations of them when they're in your environment. A short break from this great conversation with Rob Morris. We have a quick message from the sponsor of this week's episode, Podcast Page. To all of our listeners who are also podcasters and have their own show, we're excited to recommend a great tool called podcastpage.io to create your own podcast website. It really is the best solution for your podcast website and we'll get your page live in just a few minutes. Links will be in the description of our YouTube video. Yeah. That was something I was going to ask, actually, just in terms of education. Do Watford provide any like little workshop sessions for parents to kind of, you know, give them little tips on maybe, you know, avoid potentially giving like directions to their kids when they're in the car after the games or something like this? Is, is there kind of that structure in place for parents to educate them in some aspects? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so we have some workshops for, across the season. I think it's been a little bit disrupted this season because of COVID and, and that kind of stuff. So there've been a couple mm. on Zoom when there was a lot of the time actually where until I suppose after January, parents weren't still allowed in much. So it hasn't been as um, prominent as it as it has been in previous seasons. But mm. yeah, they. so if I'm talking in a best case scenario season and, and certainly what we'll look to do moving forwards is, um, you know, three or four workshops a, a season around different aspects of, so one might be touchline behaviour. Um, so understanding what your what you say or what you don't say or what you how you physically look on a touchline and then the impact that can have and also you know stuff around um and and i think this is a a massive one in the foundation phase is um uh, like i wouldn't say goal setting but rewarding um outcome-based um goals so like the classic one is right if you score a hat trick or five pound a goal or I've had boys, oh new boots, yeah, yeah, scored a hat trick. So my dad got me new boots. Okay, nice. So I'm thinking, right, well, that's that's a red flag straight away because um, you know, although it's very well intended, you know, I would always encourage parents to look at the process and maybe look at the tar- the individual targets that someone is working towards rather than outcome-based goals, because mm-hmm. that can affect decision making. Um, you know, I've had a parent previous in the past that said, look, that was, uh, uh, you know, 
debating whether he got the the last touch on a deflected goal because that meant he would get more FIFA points. <laughs> you know, probably yeah. shouldn't be something we're worried about. Whether he did it, did it touch him or not? You know, did he work hard? Did he have fun? Yeah. Did he have a go at his targets? That's fine. If he did those three things, come off the pitch thinking he he, he worked hard. You know, they're your rewards. If he didn't try or um, you know had had a bad attitude on the day, then maybe not. But if you're going to reward someone, look at the things that is in their control. You know, yeah. if you're rewarding someone for for goals and you come across a six for under 11 goalkeeper and 77 goals, it's scoring many. Yeah. But, you know, if you're saying, you know, try and take shots off on your weaker foot or try and get away as many one-touch finishes as you can, brilliant, there you go. That's that's an outcome-based. So that's a process-driven goal rather than a, an outcome-based one. Yeah. I don't think it comes from a... Well, it comes from a good intention, you know, being a parent, you know, you want the Absolutely. best for your child. And sometimes they just don't know because we're the experts in, you know, football and, like, giving... You know, feedback and stuff like that so it's always just nice to just remind them of uh, of these concepts and how it can affect their their, their children really so it's, it's brilliant that you guys have that yeah. it's because you know if you if you reward the process you know the, based on how you reward your child is how they're going to tackle future yeah. um, challenges that they face and that's not just in football that's in studies and things like that as well you know if you're focusing on the outcome let's say for example they get a bad score on a test that's seen as a negative. But let's say if you got a bad score on a test, but you didn't really work that hard towards it, then that's the reason why you didn't get that, you know. But if you reward the process and they start putting in hard work and then they get a good grade, it's because you got the good grade because you worked hard, you focused on the process. Yeah. Um, so it's super important to share that. Um, yeah. A lot of what you're saying is what we've learned on our masters, which is uh, <laughs> it's crazy to hear. Yeah. Um, in terms of, you know, we've done a lot of uh, discussing on, on the podcast around like um, selection procedures at academies. Um, what sort of the retention releasing process like at Watford? Um, what, when does the selection period actually happen in the foundation phase? What's, what do you mean? So in regards to moving forwards, so say the under 11s moving towards under 12s, when, yeah. does, when do we make the decisions? Yeah, so like obviously... But under, I think it's under 16s that they get the scholars. Yeah. Um, is there like a, does it just go year on year until you get to scholar and then you get your scholar or not? Or how does it work? Yeah, I think there's lots of different aspects that come into it. It does, so nines, tens, elevens, they're all one year's registrations. When you yeah. get, if you at the end of under 12s, you'll get a two year through to under 14s. Right. Under 14s, if you're successful, then you'll get a two year to the end of under 16s. Then it's a scholarship, and then if you're really lucky and you've worked really hard, then it, it's a pro contract. Um, I think in terms of the selection process, the the beauty of the, um, the younger age groups just having those those one years is that you can. Um, and this sounds. I don't want to. Don't want this to come across derogatory. Is you can afford to take risks on players because they are so far away from what the top end looks like. You know, you can have someone that's come in that straight out of grassroots that hasn't had any academy experience before. You know, we, we've had boys that have, you know, in, you know, oh, he's, he's come in as an under nine. He's only been playing football six months. He's, he's up here or he's, you know, uh, a got really high athletic potential, you know. And so, right. So, so come in and we'll have a look at him. But if it doesn't work out for him, if he is too um, far off the level, you know, 
or the, the perceived level, then that's okay. Then then we can probably you know give them some feedback and it, it's that decision is easier. I think it, when it goes to the YDP, so kind of where you know the top end of my phase 12s going into the end of under 14s, we have to look at in terms of the retention. We have to look at the pathway. So look at the types of players in front of them. Mm -hmm. So for example, we are really fortunate. We've got some really really good left backs. You know, which is quite a strange position to stay in and not something that, you know, um, you know, not, I suppose not the most glamorous position, but it's one of our, when you, strangely, it's one of our strengths throughout the academy in terms of 16s, 15s, you know, 14s and 13s. So we've got loads and loads of players. Um, so, you know, if we have three or four left backs, then, you know, although they might be doing well, we perhaps wouldn't be able to take them through. And when I say, left backs i'm not suggesting any under 12 is only going to be a left back it's yeah. probably positional or um attributes or traits that might lead us to believe they're probably going to end up there so uh, i think like like everything we have to be open that we won't get them all right and we no one's got a crystal ball you know the there's some you know we've let go boys in the past that have come that have gone on and done really really well elsewhere that's fine we've, we've let boys go and you know it was the right decision um so it's a difficult one it is from a personal perspective it's absolutely the worst thing about being in in academy football is the the you know the negative end of season decision meetings because you get the you know the i suppose the privilege to spend three or four um you know being accompanied of boys three or four times a week minimum you know for how many years and then you've got to sit down and you know explain to the parent why they're not going to be taken through um so what what the process looks like is that we give the parents a day um and we say on this day you're going to be informed of your end of season decision if it is a yes then you'll get an email if it is a no then you will get a phone call um, and it'll be straight to the parent with some feedback or with some, I suppose, bullet points, headline bits of feedback, then with the invitation of, of coming into a meeting so we can outline absolutely what the reason is and more importantly, how we can support them moving forward in terms of exiting in, a, as, in, in as much of a positive way as possible. Um, so, you know, that process has evolved at the end, uh, you know, throughout the years when I first joined a long time ago, it was, you know, end of season reviews at the stadium, it'd be in a box and it'd be coming, you know, yes or no. And then, you know, feedback at the same time. But what, what we found was it was, um, you, you would get instant emotional reactions from protective parents, you know, with devastated children. So there was a, in the bad ones, there could have been quite a bit of conflict. Um, but also whether it's a yes or whether it's a no, the feedback then becomes irrelevant. So you spend 50, the other 14 minutes of a 15 minute meeting mm. after the one minute decision talking at someone, they're not interested. Not because they're not interested in the feedback, because, but it's because they've been so um, worried probably around the decision itself. We want to totally remove that, you know, and not, so if there's, if it's a good one, we don't want to give them a big long build up around you coming in or what's it going to be he's a yes he's oh he's a no no just right here's an email yes we can feedback to you you know at the right time as to what you've done well you know they they get six weeks feed they get six weekly feedback throughout the season so 
we'd like to think the majority of the time, if it's a yes or if it's a no, they've probably got a good idea. So if there is a yes, they shouldn't be too worried. Some people still are naturally because they still don't know. Um, and, and some people, you know, despite, you know, sometimes positive reviews, you know, that, that might be due to a player pathway decision that we've got too many of, of a certain type of player yeah. and they haven't quite hit the mark, then, you know, then that they might still take it um, badly or not, or not expect it. But we'd like to think the majority would know, you know, if it's a no, then they've probably had two or three previous reviews, need to do a little bit more of this, need to do a bit more of this. Or if at Christmas, right, we haven't seen improvements here this time, you know, it might be, it might be a no or, mm. you know, th those type of discussions. But, you know, it's, it's never easy and year on year, it doesn't get easier. Um, it's, it's good that, it's that process is evolving. You know, for all the amazing opportunities you, you get in academy football, you know, it's, it's the worst part. And, but it, it comes with the territory, you know, for the, for the staff, you, you know, it's coming. And for the boys, well, you know, you can agree with it or disagree with it. It is the nature of the beast. And when you sign up to it, you know, when you sign as an academy footballer, the only guarantee is that your journey is going to end at some point. That might be one year in, it might be 10 years in. It might be when you have, you know, become a club legend and you've got a statue outside the front of the ground, you know, but your time at the club will end, you know, but, you know, what you do in that time will determine how long it goes on for, I suppose. It's good that that process is evolving though. And because uh, like we've spoken about, we were spoken with players who have come on the podcast and they're spoken about, you know, the process of how they got released. And it was like that meeting that's like yes or no and so brutal. But the fact that it's more of a gradual process and also even with the parents, you know, having that phone call, like you said, it sort of softens that blow and allows them to come into the meeting a bit more rationally. Um, so it's definitely good that you're doing that. Um, and constantly thinking about how you can sort of better such a um, difficult scenario, you know? Yeah, and I think a lot of where we are with that, we've listened to the feedback from the parents. Mm. Yeah. So we have a thing called parent voice. So we have two representatives at each age group and they have meetings with some of the academy, you know, they have regular meetings probably like once every six weeks or once every couple of months, you know, with um, certain members of the academy management team. And, you know, they talk about different points. So this process is a lot, uh, although it's, club driven it's actually with their feedback on board um right. so i think it's you know it's really important like um you know say we do give someone bad news and we say look you, you're not going to be offered a registration beyond the end of the season um you know one of the conversations with the parent is how do you want him to be told do you want to tell him you know or do you want us to tell him you know that it's part of that and understanding what the individual wants because yeah. you know coming into a box in front of you know, three members of staff and being told no in front of your friends and family and then walking out the door and seeing, you know, friends that's still there, it's quite tough, you know, for, for anyone. If you imagine if as an adult, you know, if, if, that, if that was how my end of year PDR worked, you know, yeah. are you in or not? You know, and, you know, be, it could be devastating. So, um, you yeah, know, I'm really glad it is evolving. Um, yeah, not, not just for our club, but I think the, the wider, you know, wider context i think a lot more there's a lot more um, to be done around player care and you know exiting and i suppose one thing i didn't mention is you know one of the things we do is we have you know each individual has a player dossier you know when we, we sit down with the parents and you know once we've um 
come up with what we want to send out and they've agreed to it, we will send it through to other clubs. And we have a player care manager that will be, you know, talking to other clubs, um, you know, around potential next steps and, and where they want to go. It mm. might, someone might just want to go and back into grassroots and regain their confidence and go and be the best player again. It's absolutely fine. Some people want to carry on playing. Um, we do have to manage their expectations because if they leave, you know, wh where they live and, you know, kind of how good they are, you know, if they are leaving Watford, their probably next point of call isn't going to be Man City, you know, <laughs> but it, yeah. it might be, you know, another local academy, you know, what, and we would never turn down or we would never stop someone going elsewhere because just because we've said no, our opinion, it doesn't mean another club or a perceived better club isn't looking for the, the skill set that that boy can bring. Yeah. So, you know, I, we've had people that have, we've let go and they've signed for Tottenham. That's not a problem. Yeah. doesn't mean we've got it wrong, but yeah. just they maybe they weren't the right fit for us or they needed that setback to go away and, you know, go and, and, and learn from that experience. So when they have an opportunity elsewhere, they've got, you know, going back to my early point, they've got tools and experiences to go and deal with it and help them better moving forwards. Mm. Yeah, at the end of the day, football is a game of opinions. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, come on, John. I was just going to ask, in, in terms of that aftercare, do you offer any potential, like, kind of well-being or any 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 support with regards to that end and not just only the, you know, helping finding new opportunities for, for, that, for them to play? Or is there, like, a, yeah, shit? Yeah, no, absolutely there? we do. So we offer... Um, we have a part-time um, sports psychologist that works at the club. So all the boys are offered meeting or a meeting with him. We mm -hmm. have um, a player care. Um, so Jonathan Reed is, is just joined us actually. So he there will be he will um, touch base with the families and just to check in. You know, yep. once or twice a week, just check in to see how they are. Um, and then a personal something I like to do is you know give them uh, something to take away. So you know. Some of the boys, I have got the rest of the teammates to sign a shirt, and there's you know sending it to them. You know if yeah. because some boys, again, this is we we try and tailor the um, the exit. So some of the boys, as soon as they get the decision, they don't want to come back. They don't want to mm -hmm. face it. They don't want feedback, and that's no problem. That's how they want to deal with it. You know we can only offer an olive branch, and we can only say look, you know we've got other boys that you know, take it on the chin, although they're really disappointed, but they just want to play to the end of the season, just to spend that time with their friends. So it all, all depends on the individual. And um, so, you know, sometimes we do do little leaving gifts because we want them to look back with their time fondly. You know, I'd hate someone to be, to, you know, been a Watford player for four or five years and then, um, you know, look back and have a really bitter taste in their mouth about the club because we don't know how that player is going to develop. Although it might be a no now, it doesn't mean it's not going to be a no later down the line. So like there's a current one in our um, squad at the moment. Um, uh, his name's Jack Greaves. We let him go at the end of under 14s, which I think was the right decision at the, at the time. He came back as a 16, signed the scholarship. Um, and then there's a first year scholar. He was named on the bench for the um, Premier League game against Everton a week ago. You know, so so without that no at 14s, you know, he might, uh, but with ensuring that he left properly and there was an olive branch for him to come back in later on down the line and we were open and honest with that, that scenario might have played out totally differently. He might have not got that opportunity or he might have gone 
you know, elsewhere. We don't know, but that's yeah. a real, I suppose, the most positive um, thing I could, or the, the most positive story of it I could find. Yeah. So, you know, once you have a couple of those, you know, then, you know, when you're having that discussion with the parent and you've got those real life examples yeah. to call back on, you know, it does it does mean a lot, I think. And, it, you know, it's very much not not the end. Mm. I've always thought for, do you know, those players who like don't want to come back and don't want the feedback or don't want to come back to the club to like see this, the psychologist, whether maybe like an external company or an external psychologist could like get in touch with them that isn't like, associated with the club, mm. or whether that would have impact because that seems to be a common theme across a, a lot of academies, you know. I don't think I'd want to return to maybe the club has just ended my dream, but uh, yeah, it's just, a, it's just a reality, I suppose. Mm. Um, no, no. And I think that's certainly really true. And perhaps it's something that, you know, governing bodies could, could help out more, you know, with, you know, the Premier League, I'm sure would be willing to listen. And, you know, especially as mental health and well-being is, is prioritised and, you know, it's actually, becoming a lot more um, prominent in terms of planning and provisions, you know, I'm sure something like that. So, you know, the Premier League itself, everyone comes under the Premier League academy system. So why couldn't there be someone from the Premier League that acts as an external provider or, or offers support from, um, you know, from the place that they don't like anymore? <laughs> so, yeah. no, I, I think you're absolutely right. I think that, that, that could be a, a really good provision. Mm. In terms of like sports psychology as a whole, how important do you think that is for, um, you know, footballers and, and coaches as well? You know, there's a lot of focus on physios and, you know, maximising the physical aspect of football. But how much do you value like sports psychology? I think it's essential. You know, I think it is as important, if not more important than technical, tactical, physical, because I think it, it underpins everything. You could have the best player in the world, technically, could have the, the, the best athlete, the head isn't right or, you know, they're, they're not in the mental state to perform at their maximum potential or um, then they won't. Yeah. Simple as that. We, we've all had stories in the past of players that, you know, oh, he was so good, such a good player, but, you know, he had this issue, he had that issue. He couldn't deal with this scenario. So it, it underpins everything. Yeah. So, you know, in my experience, we can't do enough um, to, to give that support. I think we you know, and I'm generalising, I'm not talking about Watford necessarily, but I think the wider context of, of academies are starting to understand the need for it. I still think we are, and again, I'm generalising, just my experiences, I still think we are reactive rather than proactive. Yeah. So I think we are, if, you know, like the release decision, we're mm. very quick to offer a psychological support after the event. Mm. But, you know, had we offered the enough guidance and support and, and tools um, throughout that player's journey, maybe they wouldn't have been there in the first place. You know, I'm, and I'm not using that as an example or our club as an example. It's just a, a general um, feeling that I get um, because, you know, like, like any walk of life, if you're not mentally in the right place to perform, whether that's on the football pitch, whether that's, you know, in an office, whether it's as a, a policeman, whatever that your, you know, industry or or trade or, um, you know, if you're not mentally prepared, you can't give your, be the best dad or brother or partner, you're not going to give the best version of yourself. So, I think it's massive. So it's great that you guys are bringing 
you know, podcasts and discussions like this to, to bring it more to the forefront because the more discussions around it, the better. I think it's a common perception across like sports psychology as a whole. It's, it's kind of perceived as only solving problems, but it's not really that, is it? It's also, like you said, preparing uh, the mental side, you know, you can, prevention is better than cure, you know? Um, mm. So it's like going to the gym, training your brain. So, um, yeah. so yeah, yeah. In terms of like being proactive, you know, a lot of the research that I did in terms of obviously being released can cause major psychological distress. And um, a way to sort of solve that and be proactive is having a higher educational status, having a wider identity and um, reducing like involuntary career termination. So like that gradual process is obviously like supporting that because they sort of maybe come to expect that it might happen if I don't hit these certain things. Um, but definitely like facilitating that growth mindset, what you've spoken about all podcasts, you know, having that educational status and a wider identity those three things, if, if you can facilitate that up until those selection procedures, then it will reduce the psychological distress that they may feel uh, when they are released. So mm -hmm. definitely, I think adopting that proactive uh, mindset is definitely important. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, Jordan, I just had one question for Rob. Why do you think clubs aren't um, maybe hiring more psychologists in their systems? Why do you think there's still that like tentativeness of what would you say um and again i'm, I'm not speaking for my club oh, yeah. because this isn't you know this is just my own opinion i think sometimes it could be um literally as simple as money and budgets oh, yeah. you know and, and, until it becomes a necessity you know, and the governing body, so the Premier League or EFL, whoever is in charge of the academy, unless they, until they say, I think, to be in a Category 2 academy or a Category 1 academy, you must have this full-time psychological provision in place. I'm not sure it will. Mm -hmm. Because football clubs are businesses, you know, they, they, they have their own running costs. Yeah. Very, you know, people see the, the you know, the billion-pound industry that the Premier League is. Let me tell you, that is worlds away from the, the academy. Yeah. You know, it is it is very very different um so we we don't have the luxury of of thousands or you know hundreds of thousands or or millions to invest in the academy it's on a strict type budget um yes it has a better budget than a grassroots football club uh you know but there is still a lot of constraints that we have so i think that's one of the key things it's not governed or it's not a necessity um mm. i believe it should be um and, and you know that we've had loads of really good discussions and you guys have made made some good points and you know backed up with your your research as to why it should be but um and, until it does i'm not sure i think it could be as for a, a reason as simple as that yeah i definitely think it's grown in the right direction though and becoming more and more popular uh, so that's good i suppose um in terms of like a final question um what sort of your future ambitions and aspirations as a coach what, what are the next steps for you that is a good question. If only I knew, really. Um, <laughs> do you know what I mean? So it's a funny one. So, um, you know, earlier on we spoke about work-life balance. So I am, as day of record, um, a week away potentially from being a, a dad for the first time. Oh, so, um, wow. Yeah. Jeez. Like due, due date is a week on Thursday. Okay. So, um, Congratulations. So, yeah, <laughs> thank you. So, um, you know, that that's a really exciting thing for me, but it also, like, changes perspective a little bit um so you know i've spent 
a long time giving up evenings and weekends. And, you know, I'm, I'm very privileged to be in the position that I'm in. And I've had, you know, got some great friends, had some unbelievable experiences, you know, in academy football. You know, the question I have to ask myself is, do I love it enough to sacrifice? Now I'm, you know, going to be bringing a child into our family. Do I love it enough to sacrifice that? You know, I don't know is, is the answer. So that's something I've got to think long and hard about. I think if I park that to one side, if I was just talking about me and, you know, what would I want to do? I think um, I do really enjoy helping people um, and in sharing my experiences. So I think look, if I could pick a job in an academy, it would probably be a head of coaching to move, moving forward. So, and, you know, and, and perhaps a, head of coaching in the foundation phase specifically yeah, you know yeah. I, I know some clubs have that it's quite a niche role I don't think I'm have have enough experiences to share to go and tell you know Omar Ritz or Richard Shaw at the 23s how to do their job you know I can I could certainly help them and guide them and uh, you know try and give them tools to make sure that they're operating at the top of their game but I think you know where where my experiences lie and um where I've got more value to offer would be in the foundation phase. So, you know, it, you know, similar to what I know, um, he's been on the podcast previously, Paul Barry, who used to work yeah. for us. You know, yeah. he's now um, foundation phase head of coaching at, at Crystal Palace. You know, that, that role sound, sounds incredible. And, you know, I'm glad to see he's doing work, doing so well. That is absolutely tailor-made for him. You know, yeah. he's, he's full of some unbelievable ideas. So yeah. something like that, I think for me would be good. Um, or possibly, you know, finding other ways to share my experiences and, and help young coaches. So, you know, if I had to step out of academy football, you know, could it be lecturing? I know I'm like you, I'm doing a master's degree at the moment to get myself um, so, some academic qualifications on my CV. Um, so, yeah, I think perhaps in a, you know, a university setting, I, I could see myself. I don't know. I, I think I've come to peace with, I don't need to be working in a first team. I don't really have any aspirations to work in the PDP. So it's where can I use my foundation phase experience and, and passion to either help players or help coaches. Yeah. That, that's kind of where I'm looking at. That's what I found so refreshing about Paul Barra and, and about yourself, you know, I don't think there's no shame in specialising in the foundation phase. It's a really important phase. It's the start of their career. It's probably the most integral for making them a long life football fan, you know? Uh, so that's inspired me to try and do something in the foundation phase also um, that I'll probably talk to you after about, but no, I'm sure anything you put your mind to, I'm sure you're going to achieve it because uh, you're a passionate guy. The stuff that you've shared with us today, it's been a, an unbelievable chat, honestly. I love, uh, I, honestly, the episodes of Coaches are my favourite. Like, I just have so much energy for it. I love it. So um, thanks so much for coming on. No, I appreciate it. Yeah. It's been great. Yeah, I really enjoyed it. Mm. At this moment, I sort of just give the, the guest uh, an opportunity to shout anything out they've got going on. Uh, all the links to your social media will be in the description of the YouTube video. Uh, is there anything you want to say? Um, no, not necessarily. Just, just thanks for coming on and keep keep doing what you're doing. You know, sharing some really good messages in in terms of your passion for um, psychology and, and helping other coaches. You know, hopefully some people will listen to this and maybe they take take one percent from it or take one tiny thing. Um, 
if anyone does want to find out about a bit more about what goes on in the academy, then we do have some social media accounts. I think they're just Watford FC Academy on Instagram and, and Twitter. But also okay. if you, you know, not something we haven't necessarily spoken about, the kind of um, coaching syllabus and, and how we deliver and that kind of stuff. So, you know, if anyone wants to get in touch and ask questions, then, then please feel free. I'm more than happy to to share any of my experiences or, um, you know, talk about, talk to anyone about what, what we do and why we do it. Um, so, yeah. I'm sure when we uh, clip up the podcast, you know, uh, those accounts will be tagged. Uh, so, yes. yeah, we'll uh, we'll make sure we do all that. Um, but, yeah, we hope you enjoyed this episode. If you could please share this with your friends or someone you feel will benefit from it. Most importantly, like, subscribe, comment down below any questions or guests you'd like us to get on in the future. Uh, go follow us on Twitter or Instagram. Links will be in the description of the YouTube video or find us at Master in the Mind podcast. Thanks for listening and we'll see you in the next one. A final word from the sponsor of this week's episode, Podcast Page. To all of our listeners who are also podcasters and have their own show, we're excited to recommend a great tool called podcastpage.io to create your own podcast website. It really is the best solution for your podcast website and will get your page live in just a few minutes. Links will be in the description of our YouTube video.